step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A troubled boyhood. Teen years fueled by drugs and booze. A promising professional football career in danger of being derailed by addiction. And just when it seemed like his dreams were coming true, he is linked to unimaginable acts of violence. This week's episode is... Aaron Hernandez, Part 2. A bump in the night, your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I'm gonna kill you. I had a dream about Aaron Hernandez. And so did Paris. Oh gosh. <laughs> so I think <laughs> I think my brain is full. You know, this one I was telling Tommy today, because <laughs> spoiler alert, you guys, we said this is gonna be three episodes. It's gonna be four. Because the more we've got into this, it is just layers upon layers upon layers. But what I told Tommy is it doesn't feel to me like when we were doing Ted Bundy and I was like, I cannot hear any more about mm-hmm. Ted Bundy because there's so many other facets to this that have nothing to even do with him Mm -hmm. it's not just like someone that was killing for 20 years yeah this involves the nfl his childhood his family all these other college sports the insidiousness of yeah yeah and just like that component alone Mm -hmm. is so fascinating to me and plays such a huge role in this that i haven't got bored yet i keep finding articles i'm like this, add. Ha- this has to be in it, too, because mm-hmm. it's just, I mean, even as much as we're doing, there's still a ton that we we're, still have to cut it out that we're not saying. But that's, you know, we're we're hitting the, in our opinion, the the meaty stuff. Yes. And the high points and things and the stuff that I think gives context to the outcome of why yeah. why it ended up this way. But 
I agree that there's so much that the even the Netflix documentary doesn't cover. His brother's book doesn't cover. Jose Baez's book, which I read, does not cover. And even all those things put together. So we're trying to make an amalgamation of all yeah. the information. I mean, it's what we always do. But the Boston Globe did a five part series on it, which is fantastic and super thorough and in depth. And our friend Kyle Austin was telling me there is an entire serial podcast about Aaron Hernandez out right now, too. That's really good. There so, you go. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to this guy. Definitely. More he, than I ever knew. Oh. Tom, well, I told Tommy it was going to be four a four parties. Like, man, I don't know anything about this case. I <laughs> thought it was just like he did one thing. I'm like, there's a lot to yes. it. And a lot leading up to the things that he did. So, yeah. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And this is part two. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to part one. There's a lot of stuff that it would behoove you to know going into this one of of his abuse of childhood and kind of how they were raised and some unsavory characters he met. And a good setup for what's about to happen next and kind of why somebody would do these things. Yes. So let's get into it. In January of 2007, Aaron Hernandez began his college career a semester early at the University of Florida in Gainesville. It was an exciting time for the Gators, as both their basketball team and football team had just won the national championships, and Aaron was eager to start spring training with his new team. I don't, I mean, sometimes it's good for kids to graduate high school early. My cousin graduated high school early to go to college because she wants to hurry up and go to law school and be a defense attorney, but sometimes she's very emotionally mature. She did all of her classes in advance. She scored super, super high on tests. She tests at really high levels. Not always emotionally mature yeah. uh, to graduate early. And in this case, I think it was just to hit the football field running. Even at 18, most yeah. are not emotionally mature. No. I wasn't. No, straight up. No, not at all. Well, athletes were gods among men on campus. And as Aaron quickly proved himself to be the best tight end in college football, his notoriety began to climb sky high. But with great reward comes great responsibility, and it was clear that was something Aaron was not equipped to handle. Aaron was emotionally immature, even for a 17-year-old, and had a temper that often escalated to violence. He was still coping with the death of his father, his abusive childhood, and questions about his sexual identity. Years later, in a taped phone call from prison to one of his Gator teammates, Aaron admitted that when he arrived in Florida, he was brimming with rage due to his family turmoil, according to the Boston Globe. You know how I used to always be going sick over that shit when I was down there? I was so immature, just reckless, said Aaron. He uh, definitely was tr- struggling with the his mom, Terry and Jeff. You know, his mother married his cousin's ex-husband, yeah. and he was very close to his cousin. And I think he saw that as kind of the ultimate betrayal and... She, quote, ruined their family, tore their family apart. He used a lot of that kind of language. He had a lot going on that would be hard to deal in any circumstances. But if especially just one. if you're just now in a foreign state, no, no, like, uh, friend, he didn't know anyone there when he went there or anything. And it's scary to go to college. I knew a lot of people at the when I went to tech my freshman mm-hmm. year. I knew my roommate. I knew... Like, I had tons of friends that graduated the year before that went there. So it wasn't like I went in blind to college, mm-hmm. but it was still a scary experience. You still, at the end of the night, don't have a mom or a dad yeah. on the other side of the wall. Exactly. Well, Aaron also made no apologies about his love for partying. 
For the past year, he had led a consequence-free life at his cousin Tanya's house, overindulging in booze and marijuana on a daily basis. This reckless behavior began to escalate in Gainesville, worrying those closest to him, including his coaches, who reached out to Aaron's older brother, Jonathan, for help. And Jonathan at this time was at University of Connecticut playing football. Yes. And dreaming of being a coach, hopefully, and he... he, Having a life, a good life, doing his thing. And it was kind of their understanding, we talked about in the last episode, that they would both go to UConn together, and it would be back, just the Hernandez brothers are back, but he made his own... He made his own choice to go to Florida here. According to Jonathan's book, The Truth About Aaron, the coaches told him that they were worried about the crowd Aaron had fallen in with, quote, outside the program, meaning the non-football players. Aaron's new girlfriend, Alyssa, was also concerned. When Aaron would smoke weed with his friends, Alyssa would warn him that he had much more to lose, his football scholarship and a promising career, than his 'er ne'er-do-well pals. I think that's the the same thing that happens later with the Patriots and the same thing that kind of happened earlier with the high school is that he has the opportunity of a football team, which normally is almost like a fraternity. It's yeah. almost like a team Boy Scout kind of thing where you all stick together. A brotherhood. A brotherhood. And he keeps being attracted to these tough characters, these the people in Tanya's house who were selling drugs. He's, that's where he meets the two people that will pay a, play a big role later. Yeah. But he meets these people that are much, much older, that are harder, have had rap sheets and hard lives. Or in this case, all of his teammates want to – his teammates with people who all they want to do is play football. They don't want to go get drunk and party. Right. He alienates himself a lot. Yeah, it's almost like he's afraid of the brotherhood. I think, too – if he's struggling with his sexual identity and you're around a bunch of football players that they they will say like in the locker room like there's words thrown around there's stuff you don't talk about like if he especially on the patriots like even some of his best friends would say very homophobic things all the time so mm. if you feel like maybe you can't be yourself around these people but also he uh, is probably more comfortable around kind of a, a seedy group. That's what he fell in line with at Tanya's house. Feels like home if that's what her, her her house was home to him. Yeah. And if you just have a low self-esteem, which it seems like he does, you kind of sell yourself short. Mm-hmm. Well, Aaron told Alyssa that he wanted to marry her and have kids with her, not only because he desperately wanted a family for himself, but also because he was afraid that when he made it, he wouldn't know how to handle himself. According to Jonathan's book, Aaron told Alyssa, I love drugs too much, and confessed that he worried he would lose himself in fame and success. Alyssa told Aaron keeping him off drugs was not her responsibility, but the two continued dating. That's a a legitimate fear. I feel like that's he's not one wrong. of the more honest and vulnerable times he's been. He's I've not always said if I was if if I had been a child star and like made it big in Hollywood and then I would have developed some sort of addiction. Yeah, I mean and it's people with addictive personalities that maybe would have, you know, I did you see Artie Lang from the Howard Stern show recently? So I used to be obsessed with Howard Stern. Oh yeah, I I in high school I listened to him I was, every uh, morning with my friend Julia on well, the way to school. I'm glad I'm not crazy cuz I used to watch the E show. Like, oh yeah, I watched that all yeah, the time. I was obsessed with that. And he has now his nose doesn't exist anymore yeah he snorted it to it is the most it's unbelievable and when they took a mug shot so he's looking straight on the camera and then is this recent yeah so he's been in recent trouble yes he got uh he's he was like sober for maybe like seven or eight months and i got went down an Artie lang rabbit hole the other day because i was looking at well he's on crashing 
Oh, well, I looked at the Cameo website, and he was on there, and I thought, I don't recognize that picture. And I had to Google, and I was Googling what happened to his nose, and he said he won't get it fixed. The guy from uh, Botched offered to fix his nose for is free. Is it just caved in? It doesn't. Ex- it's flat. It's completely yeah, flat. The whole has, septum is gone. Yeah, it's the Coke ate, its, yeah, ate it, his it nose, just, the bridge of his nose through. It's gone. It's just flat. So his his profile, whenever he's turned to do his mugshot, is completely flat on his face. So you think, okay, if Artie Lang was an insurance salesman, Maybe he would have drank, uh, you know, drank every night when he got home. Maybe he would have done a bump or two here. But when you're a comedian and people are just are a celebrity coming in and just handing you drugs and yeah. everyone wants to party with you, then suddenly you're, you know, you're John Belushi. Everyone's yeah. handing you drugs. You don't have to go looking for it. Yeah, he's on. Uncra- he's a big role in crashing. Mm-hmm. And um, he talks openly because he plays himself, mm-hmm. talks openly about his drug use and stuff. And I always wondered if he was using while filming because mm-hmm. i he also talks about like getting sober and being sober but so i wasn't ever really sure while that was being filmed if he was still using yeah, or not he uh violated his probation and went back in the That's treatment a bummer. i hope he gets hope he gets it back together yeah but yeah i mean people just you're the rule same rules that apply to you and i don't apply yeah. to celebrities and football stars and, and when you have like that, that predilection it's just amplified yeah. times a million so he was completely right yeah he called it he completely no he called did it. yeah well academically aaron was also not prepared for college life he struggled in school and worked with a tutor most of the time Alyssa challenged him to write a paper on his own a challenge aaron accepted But when the roommates got a hold of the paper, they mocked Aaron for how badly written it was. He was angry and told Alyssa that's why he never tried in school. Yeah, she lived with some roommates. And then when they started dating, he was eager for he didn't want to live in a dorm. He didn't want to live alone. He was eager to be with people. And so he sort of just brought his things in one day and moved in with her. But it sounds like the roommates were kind of dicks. it's, It's sad. And it's hard to reconcile feeling sorry for someone when you know the horrible things they've done. Mm hmm. But at this point he still hasn't really done anything bad he's a 17 year old boy yeah. who's getting bullied yeah and he's pro- he may have a learning disability or he's just yeah. struggling with his brain getting knocked around in his skull for many many years yeah. and it's sad to think of a 17 year old kid that's trying and then you're bullied because you don't write well yeah that will cause you to shut down and just like Be never try off. again yeah well Alyssa soon learned that there were other issues with which Aaron was silently struggling Occasionally, Aaron would use her computer. One time after he'd returned the device, she went to open her web browser and found that the search history had been wiped. Curious, Alyssa reversed the deletion and found Aaron had been looking at gay pornography. When she confronted him with the find, he denied looking at it, saying a guy from the team sent it as a goof, and he clicked it before realizing what it was. We've all been tricked by our friends. (laughs) Sinus. Dude, this... (laughs) This is a sad thing that's happening, and so maybe this story, because this story is not sad, but but it reminds me of being tricked by your friends. Do you remember when people would send you those things where it was like, look at this picture, wait for it, and, and it something will happen? I, if anyone ever sends me one of those, we're, we're, you're dead to me. Oh, God. I, they terrify me to the point of tears. The first time it happened... It's that little thing screamed in my face and I ran into the other room and burst into tears. I don't like being like, because your guard is so down. Heather is dying laughing. You're like, I was just trying to see the differences in the two photos when I was at my most vulnerable. You are. You're you're most vulnerable because you're just like, 
you're really paying attention and the last thing you think of is that this is going to happen and then it's just that loud out shrieking and just up in your face. So a lot of times it's the girl from the ring, which is not particularly That's what it was. Scary. Yeah. Yeah. It, oh, man. It would, it, that would get me. It's emotionally scarring it, for you. <laughs> yes. So sorry. So, yeah. Have we been tricked by our friends? I Well, my friends, friends. I'll say my friends always sent me like meatspin.com, lemonparty.org. Don't go to these websites. They're very What filthy. was the first one? Meatspin. It's a man doing the helicopter with the song You Spin Me Right Round playing in the background. What's the helicopter? It's you where a nude male dick around? swings his weenie around in a circular, like a helicopter blade. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Women it's, party I've is heard of. I don't of, watch any of these things because- It's a photo. It's just old men. I can't. Yeah, I know what it is though. Nude. I don't um, like seeing stuff I can't unsee. Exactly. And so that that's the type of mean tricks that my friends would send were just filthy tricks. Two girls, one cup. Goat say, which is the guy. Never friendly. seen it. All of these. I, I know what they are. I feel like if I said these to Tommy, he would be like, saw it. Saw oh, he's. Or Aaron, my brother. Saw no, it, saw every it. single one. I'll tell Tommy, will you just tell me what that is? So, so I don't, <laughs> like, don't want to look at it. He'll be like. Uh, a guy's bending over. He's spreading his ass. <laughs> like, he stuck a jar up his ass and he yeah. broke it with his sphincter. Yeah. <laughs> Just really matter of fact. He's like, uh, so anyways, what do you want to watch tonight? <laughs> like, it's, Tommy it's could have a, him. he could have a very good career of describing horrific things for like, if you, if you're visually impaired and you can't see what's on the screen, <laughs> you need a translator. He could do, cause he does it with such a lovely deadpan voice. Yeah. Yeah. He also could have a career in explaining board game rules. Okay. He is the best board game rule explainer. I, I never understand board games, so I just cheat at them. So don't play with me because I get bored oh. at the game and I just start just doing whatever I want. And Why don't like, you just say I don't want to play? Most of the time you get peer pressured at these parties. Oh. You don't know how these parties go and you're 30-something <laughs> the and the wine starts parties. flowing. Everyone starts forcing you to play Secret Hitler. Oh, yeah. My brother uh, does not like that game. Well, because of the lying? Yeah, it, honestly, it is. I've seen marriages like on the brink. People were brothers, brother against brother. One of we went, we were at a party playing it, and one brother stood up and pointed and said, "By the end of tonight, you will all know what a dishonest person my brother is." <laughs> I was like, he's made a proclamation. Yeah, it takes a turn. Yeah, neither one of my brothers like it because we we have a couple at my mom's, and we always play board games over Christmas. And my brother's girlfriend Riley, who. Just shout out to Riley. She has an amazing podcast called Hags, if you guys nice. want to check it out. Um, she loves it. And Kyle hates them. So. Oh, no. <laughs> but it is because of the line. He doesn't like to, like, it makes him feel weird to feel, like, deceptive and you stuff You do like have that. to look your loved ones in the face yeah. and lie to them. I have no problem with it. No, I didn't either. I, I won every single. <laughs> I'm great at it. I was Hitler and I won a round. <laughs> I won every round. Yeah. And, like, werewolf and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I digress. Yes. Back to poor Aaron. Borrowing Alyssa's laptop. Yes. He was tricked like we were. He was. Well, another time when Aaron had gone to take a shower, Alyssa noticed his phone was buzzing late at night. The two had no secrets from one another, or so she thought. So she picked up the phone and was startled at what she found. Apparently, Aaron and another male were texting one another sexually graphic messages and making plans to meet up. She was upset and didn't know how to approach him. At first, she said nothing. When she finally confronted him, he put a password on his phone and never mentioned anything again. Yeah, he liked to shut it down anytime people asked about this stuff. As is his right. Absolutely. You know, you know, if you're not ready to talk about that. Right. All on all on your own time. I have um, even I've been married to Tommy for five years. Mm -hmm. Been together for 10. 
if his phone goes off, it doesn't even occur to me to pick it up and see what's yeah. going on. It's just to me that's a weird. I don't. I know. I know for a fact he's not doing anything, but it's just like a weird violation of privacy. Well, and the thing is, is if you are at a breaking point in your relationship, or, or at a point where you need to look, yeah, where you, there's something tickling mm-hmm. in your head. First of all, what you're looking for, you're gonna find. Yep. You already know. When yeah. I was 18, I found my diary from when I was 18. And the guy I was dating, I thought I was thought for sure he was sexting a girl. I was just for sure. You yeah. know, you see the look on their face when they're texting. You're like, you're uh, not, you're not yeah. sending memes to your bros. There weren't memes back then. I'm not that young, but <laughs> I thought there's something. And then I, I think he was like in the bathroom or something, and it buzzed, and I just looked, and it, of course it says, you know, it's like some Alyssa or Katie, and it was just like, lol, send more pics like that oh. or something. And, and so I said. You know, I found this text message. He lit me up about looking at his phone, yeah. and and totally. To- and then, I, so I'm apologizing to him for him cheating on me. Well, that's a oh eighteen year old. That's a Heather. cheater right there. <laughs> oh eighteen year old to Heather. turn that around. <laughs> but I mean, to be fair, I shouldn't have looked. Yeah, but, but also, I knew. I knew. Yeah, you knew. But you knew. also, his defenses immediately go up, and he's like, deflect, deflect. deflect. Oh, I'm just gonna make it seem like sh- she's turn in it. the wrong. Turn yeah. It. Yeah, absolutely. I, and so I'm reading my diary being like, I shouldn't have wronged him. I'm such a bad uh, person. And I'm like, I need to travel through time and slap man, myself in the face and be like, no. because you didn't have Lizzo back then. For real. <laughs> you just want to smash his phone. And be like, bye. <laughs> but yeah. Bye, bitch. Bye. Yeah. Um, you're exactly right. If you feel the need to look, you already know what the answer is. She must is. have had, after the computer thing, she must have had some kind of inkling. Because why else, if his phone was buzzing, I would be like, oh, it's probably his football friends yeah probably his brother you know but the fact that you want to look a woman's intuition is really wrong you know what you're looking for well not long after arriving in gainesville aaron had several brushes with the law regarding traffic violations but they were fairly minor and not cause for too much concern but during the last week of final exams aaron's tendency towards violence reared its ugly head Aaron had the opportunity to play with some promising other players at the University of Florida, including Cam Newton and Tim Tebow. However, Tim and Aaron's friendship was a seeming powder keg, waiting to be ignited. One night during exam week, the two got into an altercation with a staff member at the popular bar The Swamp over a mix-up regarding who should pay the tab. When the bar manager challenged Aaron, Aaron reacted by landing a hard punch on the man's ear. Later, when his brother Jonathan asked Aaron what happened, Aaron said he couldn't explain it. He just reacted that way. It's almost like when they were playing video games as a yeah. kid and he would just flash of rage, flip out, be violent, and then say, well, I don't even, I don't even know what happened. I blacked happened. out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just see red. Yeah, basically, some guys at the bar said, hey, we'll buy your drinks. You guys are UF players. We love Go Gators. We'll buy your drinks. And then, Also, he's still 17. Yeah. And so they go to leave thinking, okay, our drinks are paid for. Well, the bar manager stops them and says, you guys got to pay. And Aaron said, oh, those guys over there have it. And the bar manager basically was put, was actually inciting a fight with him and said, no, I want you to pay it, big man. And Tim Tebow said, I'll pull out my wallet. I'll pay. And the bar manager was like, no, this isn't about you. He has to pay to Aaron, probably because he maybe. He was bowing up to him and wanted up. to prove a point. They wanted to prove a point. And so that's kind of how that it did not go well for The toxic man. masculinity was flowing that evening, juices, just like the drinks. The juices were flowing at the swamp. <laughs> When police arrived on the scene, they questioned Aaron, who admitted to hitting the man, a hit that was so powerful it ruptured the bar manager's eardrum. Despite this assault and the fact that he was underage and drinking at a bar, Aaron was not arrested. In fact, the bar manager agreed to drop any potential charges after Tim Tebow and Aaron made a call to their coach, Urban Meyer, 
who, in turn, phoned Huntley Johnson, the Gators' unofficial defense lawyer, according to the Globe. Yeah, this is a uh, state school town, and it brings in a ton of money if the football team wins. Billions. And it brings in a ton of students if the football team wins, and students mean money for bars, and bars say, okay, we won't arrest you. And this school was notorious for having winning team. I mean, their mm-hmm. football team had just won the national championship, so at the basketball Urban team. famous. Very, he he knew, uh, he saw good players, he got them on their team, and he um, protected them in a bubble. He protected them, and, and they didn't have to be accountable for a lot of their actions a lot of the time. A lot of the U of F players knew, I'm kind of untouchable. Just call this guy. Yeah. Huntley Johnson will make it go away. Mm-hmm. While a busted eardrum is certainly destructive, arguably even more destructive is a 17-year-old kid learning that he is above the law, untouchable, that his position with the sports industry, even at such a young age, places him in an elite class where police know not to mess with you and money and power ultimately win out. This incident would be the first of many where Aaron would learn that football mattered more than being held accountable for his actions. It's, it's what happens when, I think, if there wasn't as much money, at stake with the the school. Oh yeah. I mean, it's just like, well, if you win, you don't get anything. But in this, I mean, you sell T-shirts, you sell tickets. You sell, I mean, I mean the it's... theater kids aren't don't have Huntley Johnson on their payroll. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. In the fall of his second semester, Aaron's problems off the football field seemed to escalate drastically. On September thirtieth, two thousand seven, the Gators played Auburn University. In the final seconds of the game, Auburn kicked a field goal that resulted in the first loss for the University of Florida since winning the national championship. It was a hard loss for the team, and several hours later, tensions were still high as Aaron and some of his teammates partied at a club. According to witnesses, at some point in the night, a fellow clubgoer, clad in a gray tank top, yanked a gold necklace off the neck of Mike Pouncey, one of Aaron's teammates and best friends. An infuriated Aaron tried to fight the guy, but was pulled off him by Reggie Nelson, a former Gator and NFL rookie at the time. I was telling Aaron and them to stay away. We don't need no commotion. Nelson later told police, according to the Globe. Both parties went their separate ways. The argument seemingly diffused. The guy in the gray tank top left the club and got into the backseat of a Crown Victoria, which drove away. Then, moments later, gunshots rang out. A man on foot had fired five shots into the Crown Victoria as it waited at a stoplight. As reported by the Globe, one bullet struck the driver's arm while another entered the skull of the front seat passenger, Corey Smith. The man in the gray tank top remained unscathed and told police he saw who had fired the shots, Aaron Hernandez. Now, do you think that Aaron Hernandez ran out of the club to shoot into a car? Um... We will get to what I think okay, happened. Okay, okay. Do you think he did? I don't... Uh, I think he was involved. I don't think he necessarily I don't think he was it. the trigger man. Yeah. I think he was probably like, yeah, go fuck them up. If well, anything. Or they all knew the guy, you know, the friend runs back or whatever. But I just, yeah. Okay. While Gainesville police detective Patty Nixon attempted to locate Aaron, Mike Pouncey, and Mike's twin brother Marquise, who had also been partying with them... Corey Smith was undergoing emergency surgery. Corey's mother, Sandra Hines, told the Globe. When I got there, they had done one surgery, I guess to save his life, but he died on the table three times. 
The situation was dire. A man's life hung in the balance, and the young man that might be responsible was nowhere to be found. Detective Nixon continued to insist that Coach Urban Meyer produce his players. Finally, four hours after the shooting occurred, they arrived at the station. Detective Nixon would later learn the reason it had taken so long was because Coach Meyer had first taken the three players to see Huntley Johnson, the team's unofficial lawyer that had bailed Aaron out of trouble just a few months earlier. You gotta go see Huntley. Getting into some scraps and tiffs and drive-by shootings? Go see Huntley. She said, Detective Nixon said that she's retired now, but when she was looking back through her notes where all this, she could see the progression of how angry and frustrated she was getting. Based on her notes? That Yeah, that this man, there there was an attempted murder. And they're shielding him. And this coach at a major university can't produce his players mm-hmm. that has somehow these, these three guys for four hours are just nowhere to be found. Well, and it would be one thing if they said, he said, Hey, they're adults They're I don't know where they are, but he knew where they are. He oh, had yeah. them. He had them in front of a lawyer. He knew where all of his players all were the all the time. Yeah. Police questioned both the Pouncey twins and Reggie Nelson, who all denied having any involvement. Aaron was questioned last and had been isolated in an interrogation room during this time. When Detective Nixon went in to interview him, she was shocked at what she found. There, in the small room, was Aaron, fast asleep. When you're in a police station in the middle of an attempted homicide investigation, you don't expect to walk in on somebody sleeping. I would expect a little stress out of him at that point, but I didn't get that at all. Detective Nixon told The Globe. Yeah, it's very frustrating when you're like, <laughs> take this fucking seriously. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, this is conjecture, but he was probably high and drunk and false. But also, you're in a police station, wanted, or you're a suspect in a in a possible homicide. You don't know if this guy's dead or alive at this mm-hmm. point. Definitely a shooting of some kind. But you know that Huntley Johnson, he just prepped you on everything to say to this detective and probably said, don't worry, I'll get you out of this. Exactly. As soon as she walked in and woke him up, he said, "Uh, I want to speak to my lawyer. And she had to shut it down. And they had to. So, I mean, they had definitely been prepared Mm -hmm. for what to do. In the end, the guy in the gray tank top recanted his statement, saying he didn't actually see the gunman, just assumed it was Aaron because of the earlier fight at the club. With other witnesses describing a different shooter, there was no real evidence to go on, and no arrest was made. While Corey Smith survived, he had to relearn how to walk and talk. He said later that while he didn't think Aaron was the actual gunman, he did believe Aaron had information that could have led to an arrest. Interestingly, Aaron and his teammates had failed to mention to police that there had been another member of their party, a friend of Aaron's from Bristol, that had been visiting him for the weekend. Could this have been the mystery shooter that nearly took Corey Smith's life, enacting revenge on behalf of his childhood friend? That's true. That's Also, you could be charged with accessory after the fact if you're hiding now a person yes. and you knew that they did it. Yeah. Based on the type of characters he hung out with in Bristol, it would not surprise me if this guy had a gun on him. And, and flipped out. Yeah, and, and kind of took it on his behalf to do something for him. And later when they found out, they actually found out that this guy was in town from Terry Hernandez. Oh, way after the police did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the detective said, yeah, if we'd known that at the time, we 
definitely would have followed up on that lead given the type of people that he hung out with in Bristol. Yes. He would have 100% been a person of interest. People outside the organization, outside the football team. Well, Aaron's off-field behavior eventually caught up to him on the field when he was suspended from playing in the season opener of his sophomore year after failing a drug test. With such a promising future in the NFL on the horizon, he could just not stay out of trouble. Knowing his brother had an interest in coaching, the University of Florida coaches even offered Jonathan a job so he could assist them with keeping an eye on his brother. But Jonathan had a whole life in Connecticut and wrote in his book, he didn't want to uproot my life to be a babysitter to his adult brother. Which is fair. Hell yeah, it's fair. Because it would be one thing if they said, hey, we think that you're an amazing coach and we want you to come and work with us and be an amazing coach. They said, we'll fake give you a fake coaching job, but really you're just here to make sure your brother doesn't do a bunch of drugs and not be able to be a tight end and a receiver. You're getting paid to be a babysitter. Yeah, that's a that's very I mean, it's rude. Yeah, it's and it's a conflict of interest. It's going to yeah. affect your relationship with your brother. It's a terrible situation all the way around. So I don't blame him for saying no. On the flip side, you know, would that have would any of his interventions have helped? I don't know. I yeah. actually don't think so. He was good at hiding stuff. Aaron yeah. was. Yes. During Aaron's junior year, the coaches at Florida cornered his brother, Jonathan, during the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans. They warned him if Aaron didn't join the NFL before the start of his senior year, he may not make it out of college due to his excessive drug use. Aaron had begun smoking so much marijuana, the coaches feared he would be unable to pass the college's ongoing drug tests. That's a powerful reliance on marijuana. Because you don't actually get addicted to marijuana, it's just reliance. Right. Here's the thing, though, which is what Urban Meyer has since said. He only failed the one drug test Everyone knew he was, they had drug tests all the time. Everyone knew he was smoking all this weed, but it kept showing up clean. Hmm. So I learned my friend did a drug test one time and he said that he peed into a Ziploc bag. Someone else peed into a Ziploc bag mm-hmm. and then taped it to his leg. Yeah. That's, that's, I would definitely burst the Ziploc bag. There's no way I'm <laughs> you, not bursting the Ziploc bag. You sit down. Instantly. My thighs, where's it going to go? My thighs rub together. Yeah. Aggressively. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. That's though, a skinny man's do. game. <laughs> yeah. Taping a PP bag it's to a the desperate inner thigh. man's game, too. But yeah. yeah, I mean, there, I don't know what was going on, but something had to have been going on for those drug tests to keep coming up clean. You know, I, th- I wonder if it's a, a thing where they say, oh, it's a random drug test. Hey, randomly this week, yeah. you might get randomly tested, just FYI. I had a, knew a girl that got random drug tests at her job all the time, but it was she was friends with the person that did the random drug test like, and wink. would get a heads up yep. to, uh, hey, make sure that uh, I think she just like wouldn't come into work that day. Wow. Stuff. Yeah. And then one day... Uh, that person wasn't there and somebody that did not like her at work was conducting the drug test and she did not get the warning and she got fired. Bam. Yeah. Look at that. Well, despite the rampant use of marijuana, Aaron continued to dominate in practice and games. During Florida's pro day, where scouts evaluate the players on their home turf, Aaron performed exceedingly well, impressing everyone with 30 reps of 225 pounds on the bench press. According to the book, The Truth About Aaron, when Jonathan asked his brother how he did it, Aaron replied, Because I was high. Don't tell me I can't perform when I'm smoking. This seemed to be true, as later that year he was awarded the Mackey Award, 
declaring him the best college tight end in the country. He was, I mean, a powerhouse. Here's the deal. Drugs are illegal in sports, and they should be. Yeah. If you're doing this great as him, why do you, you're, I mean... If he was sucking on the field and not like being awarded as the best college tight end in football, maybe you'd think, yeah, you know what? I should lay off on the weed. No. It's making me slow. I'm not good. Somehow it had the opposite effect. It's like a performance enhancing drug. Well, and I wonder too, because physically it's taxing on your body. If it helped, if you get tackled five times in a game Mm -hmm. and you're in pain or you were tackled the week before and you're still in pain from last week and you smoke right before you go out and you're not feeling as much in pain. I don't, Every time I've tried to smoke marijuana, everyone told me I did it wrong, and I've never. I've been like, I don't think I'm high. How right did now. you do it wrong? I don't know. I think there's, there's no wrong way. They well, said I, mean, I didn't inhale maybe it the right there way. Is, but I, they said I didn't inhale it the right way, and then everyone you know started what? yelling Heather, at me. You inhale weed the way you want to inhale. Thank weed. you. Okay, well, live I your life. I've been too ashamed to try again <laughs> because I was bullied. <laughs> you well, bullied by experience. weed bullying is some of the worst type of bullying. It was very and I'm serious. sorry you had to go through that. I did it wrong, and everyone shouted at me that I did it wrong, and then I was eating a bag of Doritos just out of a big party size bag and so said, you were high no i wasn't i just <laughs> that's the choices i made oh hey i mean uh all the time and i'm rarely high and uh i love doritos are my second favorite chip what's your first food? cheetos oh nice i like i love crunchy cheetos are better than that's puffs 100 cr- hands down done i really love jalapeno cheddar uh cheetos those are good too they're really good yeah i feel like flaming hot's too hot Jalapeno cheddar. Mm. It's got the spice, but also the cheese. Yeah, flaming hot. I can have a couple, and then I'm like, woo! I'm salivating so hard thinking yeah. about jalapeno cheddar Cheetos right My now. My favorite chip. Which are they a chip? I don't know. We could go a big debate a whole about other that. Episode. In fact, yeah, I've I've had multiple people. Some people say they're popcorn. Others say they're actual chips. I don't know what they are. All I know is they're delicious. But crunchy Cheetos are my number one. They're so chip. good. And then Dorito, regu- nacho cheese Doritos. Nacho cheese Doritos are cool. Amazing. Range also great. Yeah, damn, goddamn. Dur- Doritos, Doritos 3D. I was obsessed with those. What are those? They're like puff Doritos. Oh, they're so good. I don't and think you I've could, had those. You would take a nib off the side, and then it basically made like a scoop, and you scoop oh. queso into it. They don't make them anymore. Damn. Bring back 3D Doritos. Yeah, just same as Dunkaroos. Which, by the way, I had an entirely separate conversation, unprecedented by anything I said about Dunkaroos today. Oh, did you really? (laughs) For those of you who don't subscribe to Patreon, we do a mix bag, a weekly episode. And this week I talked about Dunkaroos. And how they're coming back. And um, Scriven is very excited that they're coming back. Excellent. Well, Aaron was now faced with a difficult decision. Play his senior year at the University of Florida or try to make it in the big leagues and enter the NFL draft. However, the decision wasn't really up to him. Tired of his problematic behavior and incessant drug use, Coach Meyer, who had let him stay on the team at the request of Tim Tebow, was finally fed up and told Aaron at the end of his junior year, You're uh, you're going to have to turn pro, according to the Globe. And with that, on the fourth anniversary of his father's death, Aaron Hernandez announced he would be leaving the University of Florida and entering the NFL draft. So young. So common, those too. Yeah. You know, that's it's, the thing with this sport is you're starting to be conditioned for this eight, nine years old, maybe later. The grueling taxing on your mm-hmm. body, and you're going to start hitting your peak around, I mean, 
early 20s to 30. There's only so long you can play this sport. For sure. And uh, I mean, quarterbacks can play a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah. Or but, kickers or something like that. But, but even quarterbacks, they're not to spoiler alert for later episodes, but in some of the CTE research, some quarterbacks yeah. have suffered significant damage. Yeah. An injury based because you get sacked. I mean, if yes. you don't have a good offensive line, yeah. you're done. So, but like Patrick Mahomes was the MVP of this year's Super Bowl. He's 24. Yeah. He's 24. He's so young. First of all, he just played in the damn Super Bowl. I don't care if you hate football or not. That's like a gajillion people watching you. That's yeah. so much pressure yep. to be a 14 year old and 24. Or, I'm sorry, 14. 14 super pressure if you're 14. <laughs> they they really have to stop making 14 year olds <laughs> play in the Super Bowl. But you're a 24 year old. Think about what you were doing at 24, and could you have... I was a dumb, 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 Oh, dumb. full idiot. I would think that's the year I did a keg stand on a boat and broke my ankle. Yeah. Like, it's not a good choice. Yeah. But you think about the there's cameras, you're being interviewed, you have to perform physically, you mm-hmm. can't get sick the night before, just being an athlete... When you have like performance days like that, whether it's races or games, that's so much pressure to put on a young person. Yes. Not to mention the physical toll of, like I said, getting sacked or tackled or whatever. The players, I mean, at any big football school, but at U of F, practice was 40 to 60 hours a week. In addition to kind of going to classes. Going to class. Because the thing is. They had tutors. School is very secondary they they say in the media and everything school's number one education's number one it ain't have you seen that john cena snl sketch where it's three people defending their dissertations and it's two are the two are the actual scientists and one is a football player and it's the university of alabama and their one's like particle physics and the other one's like a, a super collider and his is like i'm here today to talk to you about bananas <laughs> <laughs> and he's like uh, yellow bananas green bananas round bananas and it's an orange and they're like that's not even a banana <laughs> they're like we think this is a great presentation because <laughs> yeah. they're all they all know that football the money from yes. football yeah. yeah i mean i'm sure like for instance oh what is his name Richard Sherman, who played for the Seahawks and now he plays for the 49ers, he, I mean, he got a degree from Stanford. He's, yeah. I mean, so some, oh, yeah, some football players 100% get degrees of, and, yeah. But in some cases, it's kind of like, you know, you, you slide through. Yeah. And, and his teammates at U of F, one in particular, I don't remember his name in the Globe article, said, um, I majored in anthropology. Do I look like an anthropologist? That's because I'm not. But you pick a major that works around your football schedule. Wow. And that's what they did. Like yeah. they had tutors. It the the team that or the the guys that came in with Aaron's class, the the rookies that year, who were all very young and and graduated high school early. Si- there were eight of them. Uh, two of them got a degree from the University of Florida. The rest of them, did they drop out or transfer? No, six of them went pro. Oh, wow. So only two got degrees, but six went to the NFL of the eight. But yeah, they would take classes at community colleges Mm -hmm. or, you know, it it didn't matter. They just needed to to be able to pass the class so they could play. And that's what the heavy implication in his brother's book was that the tutor did his work. Yeah, yeah. When the Hernandez family gathered at Jonathan's apartment to watch the NFL draft, Aaron was nervous. According to Jonathan's book, Aaron's agent told Jonathan that although Aaron had great prospects because of his performance, there are some uh, teams that won't touch him over concerns about his character. Aaron was not selected in the first round of the draft. The family wasn't too concerned. He was likely a second or third draft pick. However, it wasn't until the fourth round that Aaron was finally selected to join the New England Patriots 
as the 15th pick of the fourth round and the 113th pick overall. Still, at age 20, this made Aaron the youngest player in the NFL. So he was a phenomenal tight end. He's best in the college yeah. sports. But the the little slips of paper where they write his review, it says emotionally immature. He got the lowest score possible. Low, yeah. So I think he was at early on derailing his where if you were acting right and also playing that well, you would he probably would have been a second round draft pick. Yeah. But then it sort of fell down and it fell down because of his. And the Patriots picked their first round draft pick was a tight end. Yes. Rob Gronkowski, who he would play with and go on to do great things with. But at 20, you are emotionally immature. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of 20 year olds that enter the NFL and they know they have a and. To Aaron's credit, he had a hell of a work ethic. Yes. He would be like the first one into practice, the last one to leave. Mm-hmm. But he just wasn't. And they said he would run up and down, do like stair workouts, do extra yeah. workouts when people were like, we're all going home. And he's like, no, I have to be the best. I have to, I'm going to go to the NFL. I have to be the best. He just wasn't emotionally equipped to handle it. Yeah. I think, you know, all the partying is a way it's it was a way for him to deal with all the sad. He was yeah. sad about his dad. He was sad about his family getting torn apart. He was sad about all the abuse he suffered. Yep. He was sad about being sexually molested. There's, I mm-hmm. mean, a ton of stuff going on with him that would emotionally stunt anybody. And then when you're thrust into this spotlight in this gazillion dollar industry. Yeah. It's a they recipe for disaster. Mandatory therapy for college football um, players. It's a fucking lootly. I sat through a thing with a woman who, uh, it was a seminar with a woman who was a Olympic medalist skier, who then she went on to study psychology, and it was all about sports psychology and performance, and then also how that applies, obviously, to executives and lawyers and stuff. But I I mean, who who's to say he wouldn't have dealt with these problems if they had somebody like that? Absolutely. And been a better player. If you are going to have an unofficial team lawyer... Have an official team. Have an official team counselor. Seriously. And I think that should be the case in any sport. Mm-hmm. Or any school. I yeah. mean, I mean, you do have school counselors and stuff, but like, I don't know. When it's something like this where you're pushing somebody 60 hours a week, have somebody to check in with them and say, yes, like, are you sure? Absolutely. Shit, on Survivor, they have counselors on Survivor. <laughs> By the way, new season, two days. Could not be more excited. It's happening. They have uh, therapists there, especially after last season, all the time. And then when you get voted off, you have to meet with the therapist. Same with like Big Brother or any of those reality shows where you've been like isolated from things for a mm-hmm. while. It's mandatory you meet with their therapist before you go back into the real world. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's a reality show. If, you, if reality shows are operating their organizations better than yours, take a look at yourself. <laughs> Maybe you should take a, uh, take a take look. a pump, pump the brakes and reevaluate some. Also, things. if they already have that program, don't DM me. I don't, I'm not going to Google it. So what program? If they already have mandatory counseling for football players. Oh, I don't know that they do. I you know what? I think I did read something where I don't know if it's mandatory, but they they have a. Some some player some teams do have therapists on staff. That'd be great. Uh, it's one of those things where I think I've invented something, and then someone goes, "That's the plot to the movie Galaxy Quest," and I'm all sad because <laughs> I like, thought I thought of it. Yeah. Well, there's only so many new ideas under the sun. I guess that's true. Well, this was a childhood dream for Aaron, who grew up watching the Patriots with his brother and dad, dreaming of one day playing for them. But there were those that were concerned about Aaron being a mere two-hour drive from his seedy stomping grounds in Bristol, Connecticut. Him going to New England was the worst thing the NFL could have done. The one place you don't send him back is where he tried to get away from. High school friend and alleged lover, Dennis Sansushi, told The Globe. Aaron was officially signed to the Patriots on June 8, 2010, 
with a four-year, $2.37 million contract that included a $200,000 signing bonus, an amount significantly less than lower draft picks received. The Patriots believed they could mold the troubled young player into a contributing member of the team, but as a precaution, they conditioned his upfront signing bonus money on continued participation in workouts and other bonuses spread further out to protect their investment. Yeah, a lot of times they'll just give you a check right up front so you show up. But with him, they were afraid he was going to be partying and or fail drug tests or get arrested or something and not uh, they wouldn't get their investment that they made. And he actually, when he found out that people didn't want, when his agent was like, there's a lot of people that are uh, not happy with your character and and your known drug use. He did something very unprecedented and contacted a he ton a, of the teams and wrote letters and said, you can drug test me as much as you want. You can drug test me every day, every week. I will always show up. They will always come back clean. He was, it seemed on paper. Trying. Really trying and making an effort to, to change and stuff. Who's to say if that, if he really had the uh, gumption behind it that he was going to change or he was just like, I'm Aaron Hernandez. I get out of things. Yeah, it's fine. I'll figure it, it out. And after the fact, I'm going to be so good on the team. They're not going to kick me off right. for a drug test. I also learned a lot about NFL contracts. I watched the 30 for 30 episode Ugh, called 30 for 30. So good. Phenomenal. The broke episode where they talk about players and how quickly after they retire that they go broke. And oh, basically yeah. How the contracts work. So it says it's a two point three seven million contract, but it's over four years. And in other sports, you get the money right away, like baseball. But in football, maybe because they know you might get injured and not come back to play. It's divided out over the years. And so when you say, oh, he has a $2.37 million contract, he doesn't get that on day one. He gets a payment, divide divide that by four, and you get one payment a year for four it's years. It's having a paycheck. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. much having a paycheck. And then this, the signing bonus, normally you do get it up front, not with him. Yeah. Well, Aaron began his career with the Patriots and made an impressive showing right out the gate. However, his behavior off-field continued spiraling out of control. On January 14, 2012, Jonathan came to see his baby brother play against the Denver Broncos at Gillette Field. During that game, Aaron suffered another head injury as he played running back. He appeared groggy as trainers helped him off the field and didn't return to the game. He was later diagnosed with a concussion. Despite the injury he suffered during the game, Aaron shook it off and loaded up his brother and several friends in his Range Rover. As they pulled out of the special parking lot for players, Aaron noticed a cop directing traffic. Jonathan watched from the back seat as his brother gripped the steering wheel nervously and looked around the interior of the car. All at once, Aaron slammed on the gas, swerved around the cop, narrowly missing him, and sped away. The cop hopped in his cruiser and started after the car, lights flashing and sirens blaring. Jonathan pled for Aaron to slow down, to stop. Aaron said nothing and kept going, with the cop gaining on them. Eventually, Aaron whipped around a corner, down a gravel road, and stopped the car behind a storage unit, shutting off the lights. The men watched as a police cruiser sped by. Jonathan wondered to himself, What is going on with my brother? Well, he just suffered a concussion. Yeah. And, and they he's said driving I've, a fucking car right now. Why is that happening? Once a. he said normally when they left the game, a friend of theirs would drive them in his Range Rover. And so for some reason that night, Aaron said, No, 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 I'm going to drive. He was super insistent on driving. You know, head injuries are no joke. And he, this seems like uh, he was not acting like himself. He was being paranoid, which is a sign of CTE. He was making rash decisions. 
No one should have let him behind that wheel. He should have been under some sort of medical care. For sure. He should have been. I watched that um, Frontline documentary about the CTE and they talked about Troy Aitman one time got just nailed and his manager came in and said, uh, and Troy said, what happened? And he said, oh, you were playing against the whatever team and they sacked you. Well, did we win? And he said, yeah. And he goes, okay. Why am I here? Yeah. And I was like, you got sacked. Well, who was I playing? This team. Well, did we win? Uh, and he said that happened like four times. I mean, it is not supposed to happen to your brain. Our brains are not meant to be slammed around the inside of our skull. What they say, the brain and the skull are friends, but they should never touch each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's. So it's no wonder it's your personality and your choices and your rationale is all trapped up in there. And when you're shaking it up like a Coke bottle, it's no wonder that you see a cop who doesn't give a shit about what you have in your car. He's directing traffic, but that I got to get away. And I'm sure because Jonathan implied that there was a gun in the car that he said, oh, he was looking at the glove box. He had a gun. He, that He, liked he to, was known to carry guns and play with them. Yeah. And so, he, you know, your brain just jumps from, well, I have a gun. Well, they're going to find it. Well, I'm going to get arrested. I got to get out of here. And it's nonsense. Yeah. Plus, but, you've been hanging out with a bunch of shady people that have rap sheets a mile long. Yeah. So that's kind of the mentality you have. It's just. Bail. Yeah. Aaron continued to fraternize with several unsavory characters from Bristol, including known drug and arms dealer Alexander Bradley. Aaron became so close with Bradley that he eventually put him on the payroll, employing him as his personal assistant. In addition to being his drug supplier, Bradley was also there to calm Aaron down when he experienced his frequent bouts of rage and paranoia, according to The Globe. When you have to... um, I need a wrangler. Yeah, I mean... An anger wrangler. An it's, angler. It's uh, kind of a therapist. But but instead of talking you through... Well, I mean, I'm, I suppose he was talking him through something, but he's just there to, like, make sure Aaron doesn't lose his shit all the time. He basically described himself as he just would have to get between them and be like, if you want to hit this guy, you're going to have to hit me first. Yeah. Well, Aaron's not going to hit him, so then it defuses the situation. Yeah. But that's a significant anger problem when you have to pay put somebody on the payroll to physically put themselves between you and people that you want to fight these are there's so many red flags and these aren't even there's so many more that we're not even discussing but there's so many red flags where no one ever stepped in and said you've got to see a doctor yeah you've got to see a neuro a neurologist mm-hmm. a therapist something mm-hmm. everyone just kind of was like well I don't want to get involved. I mean, he's... I wonder what's happening to my brother. I yeah. wonder what's happening to my son. I wonder what's happening to my friend. Stop There's... wondering and start start trying to help him figure it out. But it's hard whenever the thing that's making him go down this path, the thing that's damaging his brain, that's changing his personality, is the thing that's making everybody a lot of money. Yeah. And putting everybody in, you know, put him in a nice house and ha- now he has a Range Rover. Yeah. And he's given money to his, his family and stuff, mm-hmm. too. So it's tricky. Aaron's erratic behavior was definitely cause for concern. On November 6, 2011, Aaron's 22nd birthday, he threw a party at his condo and invited family and friends. While the partygoers had fun, Aaron showed signs of mood swings. At once jovial and friendly, he disappeared into the garage. Aaron's mom, Terry, followed her son and found him sitting on the hood of his new Range Rover, cleaning a gun in his hand, looking pensive and quiet. Terry scurried back upstairs and later... Aaron was acting joyful again, eventually leaving the house to go to a club with his friends. Terry later told Jonathan, Aaron wasn't the kid I remembered. 
His attitude was getting worse and worse. And Jonathan would walk on and walk in on him with guns too, like scratching his chin with a gun and he'd yes. be like, Hey man, you okay? And he just without looking at him, Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm fine. He is not fine. <laughs> he's got a gun and he's just caressing his face with it. They were, uh, there's a, another, there's just incident after incident and we can't put them all on the show, but there's one he talks about in a book. That's, that's exactly that when he walks in on him with a gun out on a balcony by himself. Yeah. And you're like, what are you thinking about? Why do you have a gun, buddy? Why do you need that? It's, again, a red flag that yeah. he's struggling. He's struggling yeah. with something. He's suffering with something, something. Yes. The Patriots coaches and players were seemingly aware of some of Aaron's issues, but chalked them up to immaturity and running with a rough crowd. Still, as time went on, he seemed to become more unhinged. Patriots receiver Brandon Lloyd recalled to the Globe memories of Aaron's mood swings. There uh, there'd be swings where he would be you know, most hyper-masculine, aggressive individual in the room where he'd be ready to fight somebody if you know, fits a rage, or you know, he'd be the most sensitive person in the room, You know, talking about cuddling with his mother. You know, or he'd ask me, hey, do you think I'm good enough to play? There are a lot of a lot of mood swings. Just up and down. It's, and that's what, in the birthday party, she said, he was fine high-fiving people, and then he looked super-duper sad with the gun, and then he was fine again. And then he was, you know, it's one of those where we all have, you know, a mask that we wear, I guess. But for him, it was like, he genuinely was super, super happy, and then genuinely was super, super sad. And I think part of the brain damage that can happen with this is, you can't regulate your emotions that well. Yeah, it was very manic behavior. Yeah. And just like uh, super high highs and super low lows. Mm-hmm. But they could happen like that. Mm-hmm. And his uh, the Patriots also said that on the weekends, they would all kind of hang out with each other because they're not from that area. And that's who your friends are, your coworkers when you live in another city. But that he wouldn't. He went, He would go back to Bristol and hang out with his friends. Yeah, Belichick said he didn't really have any friends on the team. Mm-mm. He wasn't he was, close to any of them. He, and that was very much against the Patriot way. Yes, they're like always. They are, they're, their whole thing is, uh, I think they're saying is even like the Patriot way. Like mm-hmm. they, it's known like when players go there, they buy into this. It's going to. It's like a fraternity. It's your, it's your life. And like that's. It's kind of like your creed, and he he was just there to play football and didn't really want to have any of the social aspects of it. And I think it's like you said at University of Florida. He showed up. He was at all the practices. He worked super, super hard at the practice, but when they were leaving going, hey, we're all going to Bob's house for a cookout, he's like, no, I'm going to go home. I'm yeah. going to go back to Bristol. Yeah. Or go hang out with my friends from Bristol in Boston. Throughout the 2011 to 2012 season, Aaron proved to be a formidable player on the field. The Patriots had another impressive season, finishing 13-3, and and ended up facing the New York Giants at Super Bowl Forty Six on February 5, 2012. The Patriots didn't win that day, but Aaron's role as a pivotal member of one of the toughest teams in America was solidified. Still, his on-field accomplishments couldn't offset his personal troubles. Yeah, he and Gronk were like, they were and with Tom Brady. They were the, the tight end tandem. I mean, they were dominating the with the like league. Brady's arm. They were like sniper. I mean, he would. Sh- they just. Yeah, it was a it was a fantastic team. Yeah, and you just look at somebody and go, boy, you probably could have gone to the Super Bowl a bunch of times with the Patriots if you would have stayed on the team, right? Safiro Furtado, twenty eight, arrived in Boston in two thousand eleven from the island country of Cape Verde in the Central Atlantic Ocean. His friend, Daniel De Abreu, 29, also moved to Boston from the small island country. The two men were described as close friends, high school classmates, 
and according to CBS Boston, served in the military together before coming to Boston to find work. On July 15, 2012, the two had worked the overnight shift on a cleaning crew and looked forward to going out to enjoy a night off together with three other friends. Meanwhile, Aaron was out with his friend, Alexander Bradley, a.k.a. Sherrod. The two often partied together. Bradley supplied Aaron with a steady stream of marijuana, and associating with Bradley gave Aaron street cred. The two drove to the Cure nightclub in Boston in a silver Toyota 4Runner with Rhode Island plates. The same nightclub where Safira Furtado and Daniel De Abreu were partying with their friends. It's just one of those where, for no reason, their paths collide. Yep. Could have been anybody. Mm-hmm. Aaron had been in the club for less than 10 minutes when Abreu allegedly bumped into him, causing a drink to splash. Abreu apologized, but Aaron told Bradley that Abreu didn't pay him enough respect, a common refrain from Aaron in and around area nightclubs. Bradley would later testify that he convinced Aaron to leave the cure and head to another club, eager to avoid trouble. Hours later, around 2.30 a.m., the men were headed back to their car when Aaron spotted Furtado and Abreu driving down the street in their silver BMW sedan. According to Bradley, Aaron demanded they follow them. So it was, again, Bradley being the assistant, being the driver, and... And being the diffuser. And trying to say, this isn't worth it. We got to get out of here. Let's go to another club. Yeah. But then you have your boss, arguably your boss, angrily yelling, follow that car. Yeah. Yes, your hands are kind of tied in any whoever you are in a situation like that when you're best friends with your boss it can get a little sticky yes bradley who was allegedly driving himself and aaron in the forerunner pulled up next to the bmw where abreu was driving and Furtado was in the passenger seat three of their friends in the back seat witnesses would later report hearing someone from the forerunner yell a racial slur followed by what's up now before five shots rang out killing both Furtado and Abreu. The men in the back seat fled, asking for help and afraid that the shooters would return. One witness ran up on the vehicle just in time to see Abreu take his last breaths. By the time officers arrived, the men were pronounced dead and covered with a sheet. Before the bodies were removed, a street sweeper came through the crime scene, possibly destroying helpful evidence. Who dropped the ball on that one? We'll get to it in the trial episode, but this was a very bungled case. The argument from Jose Baez is that the cops came out and said, oh, it was a gang shooting. Who gives a shit? Fuck it. Whatever. And didn't really do the due diligence that you're supposed to do with a crime scene, including letting secure the scene or not saying, hey, buddy, let's not start that street sweeper car up. Yeah, there should have been some blockage and there was not. And they all looked and go, oh, shit, it just went by. But yeah, it was sort of treated like it was just a gang shooting. Fuck it. Meanwhile, Aaron and Bradley sped back to Connecticut in the Forerunner, where they asked if they could park it in Aaron's beloved cousin Tanya's garage. She obliged. And there the Forerunner sat undiscovered for over a year. That's a dedicated family member. If you say, hey, we need to put this car in your garage. And you say, why? And they say, just take it. Just because quiet, quiet. Now, just there's a good chance he told her. Yeah, she was she was his rock and did not snitch on anything. Yeah, she would never snitch. But it's very interesting. By snitch, I mean, report a crime that (laughs) you're aware of to the police. There's a difference between tattletelling and someone committed a murder. Let's call the cops. Let's call it our, our duty as a human. It's going to be interesting how that car gets discovered yes. in the next episode. 
One month later, on August 27, 2012, Aaron signed a five-year, $39.8 million contract to keep playing for the Patriots with a $12.5 million guaranteed signing bonus, the largest signing bonus ever received by an NFL tight end. His overall contract was the second largest given to a tight end, behind his teammate, Rob Gronkowski. Aaron Hernandez was at the peak of his career, while the families of his victims were still grieving their unspeakable loss. It's just two different worlds Very. moving parallel, where these families are, for no reason, their kids came in, they wanted to get these jobs, and it's the American dream, and part yeah. of that was, they talk about that in the documentary, that it's going out and having fun and we have a ton of choices because we came from this island and now we have the whole city in front of us and it just so happens that you just so happen to be at the wrong nightclub on the wrong night yeah and it's america where people just start shooting and the family said they and the cops were at a total loss because they didn't have any enemies Mm -mm. they weren't they had no uh they weren't in the system they they weren't gang members no they so they were like this literally happened out of nowhere, and then these perps just vanished into thin air. Mm-hmm. And with no closure at all like that, mm-hmm. also three days after this happened, Hernandez is jet skiing in uh, Rhode Island, in Newport, Rhode Island, with some of his friends, and photos are taken. Yikes. That's where his mind was at. Even if, because to be fair, he was acquitted of these crimes, even if he was not the shooter, he was still witness yes. a double murder. Yeah. And, and is jet skiing around. You can car- compartmentalize that and go and go do lake stuff a few days later? Yeah, at best you witnessed a double murder and were theoretically an accomplice and... Uh, or you actually did the murder. It's wild. And can just go, no, I'm going to sign my contract. I'm going to go jet skiing. I'm going to sign my contract. I'm going to play football. That's fine. It's life. That's his life. Yeah, that's It's just, it's strange to me to be able to bifurcate that in your head. And well, again, say, and it's like, was he able to do that because of this brain disease? Yeah, maybe. Or, or as a child of abuse, you learn to compartmentalize yeah, stuff. And I push think, it away. I think all of it. It's just, like I I said, it's it's a casserole. It is, yeah. On November 6, 2012, Aaron's 23rd birthday was met with one of the greatest gifts he could ever receive, the birth of his daughter, Aviel. He and the baby's mother, Shiana Jenkins, had been in an on-again, off-again relationship for several years after Shiana learned he had cheated on her. The couple worked it out, however, even getting engaged a few weeks before their daughter was born. Aaron had purchased a $1.3 million home in North Attleboro, where the three of them lived. Shiana was hopeful that this would be a new beginning for them and their daughter, that Aaron was finally looking to settle down and become a family man. Unbeknownst to her, the worst was yet to come. Yeah, this was a a eventful last half of 2012 because the shooting happened. Then he signs the contract. Then they get engaged in October. Then the baby comes in November. They buy the house. It was just bam, 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 yeah. bam, bam. And then, you know, of course, the season has started by then. So it is, he just, I don't know if that's how he's dealing with the guilt, you know, in his mind of like. If I keep busy, I won't have time to stop and think mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. yeah. And smoking a ton of weed. Definitely. To, that, you know, helps with that too. And Alexander Bradley was delivering just, just Boatloads. bricks of it. Bricks yeah. of it. The 2012 and 2013 season was tough for Aaron. He was plagued by a high ankle sprain and found himself benched for several weeks. He healed up in time to play his last NFL game ever on January 20th, 2013 in the AFC Championship game against the Baltimore Ravens. 
In February of 2013, Alexander Bradley, Aaron, and some other friends planned a trip to Florida. On that trip, the men ended up in a nearby strip club called Tootsie's. Aaron's paranoia kicked in, and he insisted to Bradley that two men sitting near them in the club were actually undercover cops following him. In later testimony, Bradley reasoned that, If they are, it's because of that stupid shit you did in Boston. He went on to say that Aaron became standoffish. He became upset. They said that this trip was just on a whim, that they didn't pack clothes, and they just went to Florida. They just got in an airplane and went to Florida. I think it may have been somebody's bachelor party, one of his friends in Florida that they were going down there to see. And they were just very, but very, it's again, it's just his behavior that's impulsive. Rash decisions. Yeah. It's very impulsive. Yeah, very impulsive, yes. That he didn't think, okay, well, we need to find a place to stay. So they get down there and they're like, well, the closest hotel is a shitty motel. Let's just stay there. It's like, you have a $40 million contract. <laughs> Yeah. Or even if that doesn't come for five years, you have a $12 million signing bonus. Yeah. Yeah. The next night, during another bender at Tootsie's, tensions were high, leading to several arguments between Bradley and Aaron. Eventually, the bickering stopped, the party ended, and the two men got in the car to leave. Bradley soon fell asleep in the back seat, but that restful sleep wouldn't last for long. Bradley would later testify that he woke up with a gun at my face. Right between my eyebrows. The man holding the gun was Aaron Hernandez. Worst way to wake up. I think so. That's horrifying. Yeah. You're out partying. You're, you know that feeling and you're like, oh, finally I get to go to sleep. I get to relax. <gasps> yeah. Just you're it's groggy. You're out of it. You're confused and you've got a gun just pointed like resting on your temple the, or on your forehead. Uh, on your eyebrows. And yeah. I wonder if... As a person who had spent that much time with Aaron and knows that you he can just turn on a dime, just flip, that if he thought, it finally happened, yeah. I knew this was going to happen, yeah. and it, here it is. I I imagine it would be very hard to be friends with someone. I, if I Wouldn't were you be Bradley, nervous all the time? But Bradley was a, Street a hard-ass motherfucker yes. who had uh, an armory of his own and a ton of friends that um he had a network yes would would put a bullet in in anybody no problem so i imagine he felt protected and probably felt kind of cool that he was friends with like this nfl star Mm -hmm. or whatever but you got two unhinged people hanging out all the time doing drugs aaron's also snorting coke at this time oh yeah something's gonna blow it's 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 just a ticking time bomb powder keg Aaron pulled the trigger and dumped Bradley out of the car, leaving him to die. Bradley laid there, bleeding from the face, until some workers from a nearby business discovered him the next morning. Bradley lost an eye, but vowed he would kill Aaron as an act of revenge. When questioned by detectives, he refused to give any information, instead choosing to settle the score himself. For the second time in six months, Aaron Hernandez had been involved in a shooting. However, at the time... No one but he and his victims knew. Yeah, there's the whole article about the detective being so frustrated with Alexander Bradley that they come in to the hospital and say, what happened? I got shot in the face. Who shot you? Don't worry about it. He, he I mean, again, I will deal snitches with it. get stitches. He's like, I, I'm going to plug this guy. Yeah, no, he didn't. And it's I'm like, I take don't care of it myself. I don't want you to go to jail because I want to kill you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. No, he was fucking serious. Yeah. Yes. And the cops said, OK, well, I guess we have to leave. What can you do? They can't, yeah. They're like, well, who if was the one it? guy that can tell you who it was is like, nah, I'm not going to do it. 
Also, can we just talk about the magic of the human brain that this man was shot in the face and he lived. Yeah. He was shot in the brain. It's one of those things where a literal hair to the right or left, he probably would have been dead. That's, it's just that that one spot that you can get and me somehow and Lord, he lived. He's like, the Lord kept me alive for a reason. Yeah. It's to kill you back. Right. For the next six months, Alexander Bradley texted and called Aaron in an attempt to lure him to a meeting. Bradley planned on killing Aaron, but also asked for money for his pain and suffering, including the loss of his eye. One such message read, You left me with one eye and a lot of head trauma. You owe for what you did. Over the course of the next three months, nearly 500 texts were exchanged between the two men. As the threatening messages began to eat away at Aaron, he eventually confided in his agent, Brian Murphy. Murphy, who was also a former attorney, contacted Bradley's lawyer to see if the matter could be settled out of court. In the end, it wouldn't matter, as no charges were ever filed. This didn't change the fact, however, that Aaron's life was in danger, and he knew it. Yeah, it's like he they try to later use that to, I think, impeach Bradley, saying, like, well, you clearly wanted money. But I think he, I think he was, tr- this whole, you left me with one eye and a lot of head trauma, you you owe me for what you did, is uh, what we call in the legal field a settlement negotiation. <laughs> but I think he was trying to get money from Aaron, say, hey, give me $50,000 and I'll go away, and then but also was going to shoot him. Yeah. Who's going to rob him. And sh- like he wanted the money, but he really also wanted revenge. But you can't blame a person who got shot in the face for being like, hey, I have some medical bills from the bullet that you left in my head. You think you can help me out, yeah. Mr. $12 million? Think you can help me? But most people would tell the cops, hey, this is who did it. Yes. And then you would take him to trial and all that would get settled. He would go to court and yeah. then get arrested. And then also you could sue him civilly. So you can't really have both of those things. If you decide you're going to be the vigilante and take care of it, you then both. you probably aren't going to get a sack full of money to come with that. No. Murphy was also well aware that his client's safety was in question. However, he failed to go to the police or the Patriots with this information. In an interview with The Globe, Murphy admitted that he uh, failed miserably when it came to helping Aaron. Just a little bit. I'm not here. I don't know. How, I don't know what sports agents do, but I think if you have knowledge of a crime, you should report it. If you have knowledge. Of I don't know something. if he had knowledge that Aaron shot him, but he had knowledge. I mean, I'm sure he, he, confessed he did, it. but he had not. Aaron said, this guy's trying to extort me for money, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So. He was like, I'll contact his lawyer and try and see if we can sell this out of court. He had to have known that Aaron also shot him in the face. I would think so. Well, and I wonder, too. Well, Aaron always maintained he didn't. He said it was another one of the guys. Yeah. And every time any of this happened, everyone painted him as he was a scared little boy and didn't know what was going on around him. But I would at least wonder, and maybe you don't have a duty. I don't know. Understand, I don't know if like confidentiality rules with sports agents, but I don't know if you would have a duty to tell the Patriots, hey, there could be, I don't know, somebody could show up to practice with a gun. Yeah. Or show up Which to a game. Which was Aaron's biggest fear. Because you're a sitting duck on the yeah, field. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I wonder. Well, Aaron's paranoia was an all-time high. He lived in constant fear that his family would be harmed and that he would be shot dead on the football field during a game. Unable to go to the police, Aaron turned to one of his C.D. Bristol friends for help, Ernest Bo Wallace. 18 years Aaron's senior, Bo had a rap sheet a mile long and was no stranger to street life. Aaron thought he would be the perfect person to employ as his bodyguard. I mean, if it's somebody willing to do anything and say, hey, if somebody comes up and tries to kill me, will you kill them back? And they say, yes. Yeah. 
Sounds like it. He also had a little a baby and a yes. fiance at this time, yeah. and he was legitimately worried that they were going to get killed. Mm-hmm. That Bradley was going to go after them to get at him, mm-hmm. which is I feel like Bradley far-fetched. has a code. I feel like he has a street code that he would not. He said, "I want to kill you." Uh, yeah, I could. I mean, I don't. It's like a knight. It's the knight. You know. Yeah, like it's a, like prison code. Or like, like there are honor. certain lines people don't cross. Yeah. yeah. Still, even with a bodyguard, personal gun collection, and a $110,000 custom armored Suburban, Aaron's fears could not be quelled. Bradley was still texting him threatening messages like, Since you try to end me, I will end you if you don't do what you gotta do. So Aaron did the only thing he could think of. He requested a meeting with his New England Patriots head coach, Bill Belichick, the man he affectionately called Daddy. Nobody's scarier than Bill Belichick. Dude, and this is very unprecedented to contact your coach. Not not like a football meeting. Like a, no. I need help as a person meeting. Yes. Going to him almost like a dad. Yeah. And he did call Bill Belichick daddy. That was kind of a running joke they had. He called him that throughout the whole season and stuff mm-hmm. on the field. So I think... Part of him probably was looking for a father figure. Well, somebody that you say, I have no idea what to do. I don't know. I went to my agent and he kind of went, I don't know, man. Yeah. Uh, what do I do? I can't go to my mom. I can't. I don't really have any friends. No, I mean, I wonder, you know, they didn't. This was not addressed in Jonathan's book, in the brother's book. So, I mean, I don't know if he was hiding it from his brother. And I think in this case, like you said, he's got a wife and kid. He's at this point where he thinks, okay. My career can now be on the line or I could be shot and killed and leave them. I do need to go. And it could affect my playing if they bring a gun to practice or bring a gun to work or whatever. So it is time to tell. It's time to call daddy. Yeah, it's um, we'll get into uh, in the next episode how that meeting went and all the things very excited to hear that. And then more crimes, lots more crimes. Yes. Some more crimes. So what do we think? I don't think that he did the Gainesville shooting. Do you think he knew who did? I probably was probably his friend. Yeah. Yeah. Which is still, I mean, yes, he didn't pull you're the trigger. You're an accessory. But to, you're an accessory. Yeah. Time and time again, he is putting himself in these situations where he may not have pulled the trigger, but he was uh, the cause for the trigger being or pulled. Knew. He was instigating the the shooting and is that not just as bad as having the actual i mean you still have blood on your hands mm-hmm. you know but he's he's smart enough to know if he didn't really put i think he i think he may have shot the guys outside the cure uh, that's a we'll we'll go into that i think that he did shoot those guys okay i don't think he shot the gainesville guy no i do think he shot alexander bradley yeah, I, there was I absolutely witnessed shot AK, the person Bradley. that he shot said who did it. Yeah, I think he and did. Uh, but the, you wouldn't text 500 times if you were trying to frame somebody. You know, he was, I think Alexander Bradley really was seeking his revenge and yeah. also recompense for yes. what had happened yeah. to him. But as quickly as, you know, as, as quickly as their friendship began, it soured, you know, it's. That's a friendship that is not going to last. I mean, these are all friendships built around crime and drugs and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, nefarious activity. Those aren't friendships that last. It was almost like street. Like it was 
they're almost using each other. Like, are you genuine yeah. friends? If I want to be friends with you, because but they did say Jonathan takes pains to say in his book that that he calls him Sherrod. That was his na- it was his middle name, but that Alexander Bradley made it a point to tell. Uh, everybody around Aaron, Aaron I'll pay for your drinks I got money I got money because he sold weed and so I bet he had a lot of money and he yeah. had a lot of money and Jonathan said it was strange because it's like he made a point that Aaron would be paying for everybody's drink you know at a party or it's at Jonathan's bachelor party but that when Aaron would try to pay for something Sherrod or Alexander Bradley would say no 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 I got it I got it I, I'm I have money too almost like well I don't need to hang out with you because of money I, i'm cool i'm on your level yeah it's like, almost not... like trying to he he felt a bit shamed that uh he would i'm not a pity case i don't yes. need somebody paying for i don't need stuff. you to pay yeah. for although he paid him to be his personal assistant so i don't know you tell me but yeah it's um there's a lot of stuff happening a lot of red flags where you you have to wonder if anyone had stepped in in some sort of a capacity to really help, mm-hmm. would this have taken a different turn? And if they would have known earlier about even about the the drive by, you know, the cure shooting, the Furtado and De Abreu shooting. If he somebody had gone, if it really was Alexander Bradley, and they paint that Jose Baez paints it later of he's a scared kid and he's in the car with this you know scary drug dealer man. If there was, he ain't scared. He's been hanging out with this guy for uh, years, years now. Yeah. Plus, a ton of other people that are constantly carrying guns. He constantly carries a gun. That's who he's comfortable with. Are these these guys who are the, the the bad apples? He yeah. doesn't want to hang out with the patriots. He doesn't want to hang out with like go to cookouts at people's houses. No, with he their doesn't want to. That's not his scene. Yeah, that's he feels comfortable. This is his lane. Yeah, he's not. I mean, he maybe a scared little kid in other capacities but i think he for whatever reason enjoyed kind of this lifestyle i think he was looking for an identity because jonathan yeah. talks about that when he went off to gainesville he comes back and he has a fake kind of country accent yeah and then when he moves to bristol or not bristol moves back to boston to play for the patriots and starts hanging out with the people that he met at tanya's house and with alexander bradley that he kind of takes on this like you know tattoos and gangbanger yeah that's when all the because he was covered in tattoos by the time he went to the patriots or in playing with them and that wasn't a thing in like high school or when he went to florida and that's what his brother's like who are you you never were like this but he was looking for who he was and he didn't really know who he was and then thinks oh well i'm tough i'm like one of these tough guys and starts acting like a tough guy who and i guess he thinks that means shooting people yeah. who he's even remotely a little bit miffed at well and if you've been struggling with your identity mm-hmm. since you were a kid mm-hmm. it stands to reason that you don't you've been squashing down who you really are for so long mm-hmm. that you're just looking you're just grasping at straws like to i don't try know how to something act. try and fit in somewhere and there's a whole deal with his mom he she he booked her to go to the fountain blue hotel and meet him in miami and hang out and he forgot to go. And then when he finally does show up, he shows up with Alexander Bradley and a bunch of other guys. And they all have guns and they all are smoking. And there's uh, sex workers with them or exotic dancers with them. And the mom is just mortified because he parades them into the room with her. And she's like, why did you bring all your friends to my room? And they all look like they're uh, kind of hard living people. Like, uh, And it made her really nervous. And she just said, this is not my son. My son was never... He was he just played football as a kid. He wasn't into yeah. doing crimes as a kid, but something turned. And why would you think that's appropriate to take to your mom? Exactly. That's it's choices. That's bizarre. And again, like these aren't like 
rational decisions. Mm-hmm. These are these are weird, like out of character things that if if the mom recognizes this isn't my kid, mm-hmm. dig into that. What's yeah. going on here? Yeah. But with her, there was no talking to him because she, in his mind, she had committed this ultimate sin yeah. of breaking up their family, even though the dad was passed away, but breaking up Tanya and Jeff's marriage and ruining that and then making him kind of choose between her and Tanya. And of course he chose Tanya. And so the mom would go, she went to one of his game, one of his professional football games and he wouldn't talk to her. Yeah. And so things like that were, they would, he would at the, uh, the um, Super Bowl. The family was there and he basically did the Dwight Schrute shunning like his mom was there and he just pretended like she wasn't. But then another time he would ask her for help or talk to her. So I don't think she was in a power position that she could say, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why are you acting like this? Yeah. It's a lose lose situation and it gets even more lose lose. As time goes on. There's no. Yeah. It starts to become a train going down the tracks. and There's no stopping. Yeah. And we'll. Get to even more in uh, the third episode next week. We have some live shows. We had an amazing live show. Oh, man. That was one of the hardest I've ever broke. And when we say broke, it means we laughed on stage about something in a show ever. With when Raymond first told me. That comment, I, out of context, improv makes no sense. But then when Tommy tapped out that pot of soup. It was the best thing I've ever seen. I've told so many people about it. Christy and I are in a troupe called The Cult. And it, there's uh, multiple members, including Christy's husband, Tommy. And we do improvised scenes just yeah. based on a word that someone shouts. And in the course of a scene, we ended up with a bowl of soup that could talk. And anyway, it was one of the best. Christy laughed so hard. I could see from the sidelines that tears were streaming down <laughs> your were. face. My glasses got all wet. I had to take my glasses off mid-show to wipe them off. And then when Tommy came out and tapped out the bowl of soup, you, I laughed so hard, I like ended up bending over and squatting down. You and Raymond both. We were ruined. Yeah. We were ruined. Everyone was. The whole crowd was great. So we have a ton of fun. So if you've never seen an improv comedy show, we would love to have you because we laugh so hard we cry. We make ourselves It was a super fun show. Mostly Tommy makes me laugh so hard I cry. And Nick Scott normally, but he he happened to not be there. But man, and Jade, and it's just Raymond. It's It's a great, it's a great troop. It's such a good, it's an all-star cast that I'm very lucky to play with. Uh, and you've never broken. I've never, ever seen you break. I'm pretty good about it. You're, man, when, you would when dig I in. do, when my giggle box gets kicked over, I can't stop it. And tears were streaming on my face in that scene as well. It was well. awesome to watch you. I could see you off stage crying. Like, I was off stage and I could see you, like, tears streaming on your face. It was amazing. So, so if you want to see that, come to Dallas Comedy House in Dallas, Texas on February <laughs> That's where Dallas Comedy House. No, I'm just laughing that somebody in Australia is like, I'm I'm booking a ticket. Oh, God, <laughs> I'm, I apologize to all of our Australian listeners for I'm so what sorry just for happened. what I've done. Uh, in Dallas, Texas, it's February 22nd at 9 p.m. And then at the top of the show, we told you we're going to tell you again. We officially have our show date Saturday, March 28th at 6 p.m. at the Dallas Comedy Festival, the 2020 Comedy Festival. Second year in a row we're going to do this. We're so excited. A Sinisterhood a live Sinister show. Sinisterhood live podcast recording. Yes. We'll also have a cult improv show. We will. TBD on the date. But for Sinisterhood, we will uh, have tickets available at the end of February. Yes. So we'll announce it on the show, but probably for the most up-to-date stuff, keep an eye on social media and subscribe to the ruling the airwaves tier on patreon yes well you'll you'll get early access to tickets 
Sinisterhood will always remain free, but if you wish to donate to our Patreon to help offset the cost of making and hosting the show, you can visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Patreon in the top right corner. You'll get some sweet perks like Patreon-exclusive content, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves tier, a special shout-out on the show, and a monthly bonus mini-sode. We've also started doing mixed bag episodes, so every week we'll bring a cool thing that we're into, whether it's a TV show, movie, book, etc., and chat about that for you. I got mine. I'm so excited. To record right after this. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. And if you want to get some cool swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop in the top right corner, including our all-new design featuring a very amazing cartoon made by Jedi Pixie, Christine Burchett. She's an amazing artist and she you can follow her at Jedi Pixie on Instagram and head to our shop to get a cool black sleeved with a white shirt baseball tee with a big circular logo on it with our faces as cartoons and it's the most amazing thing. I love it so much. I own it and I also own the print of it. <laughs> yes, and I uh, opened my door last night for Paris to come over and watch the Oscars wearing it and he's like, you're wearing a shirt with your face on it. I was like, it's that cute. I love it. It and is very cute. It's so. also very comfy. It's so soft and comfy. So yeah, head to Sinisterhood.com and click on shop in the top right corner and get your all new Sinisterhood baseball tee. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps small podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, where are you at on the computer? I'm on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and on Twitter at Christy or GTFO. Heather? I'm on Instagram at Heather versus the world and on in Twitter at MCK versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thanks for sticking around. Here are your Patreon shout outs. Ashton. Amanda, Morgan Baker, Sarah Curtis, Caitlin Faitu, Christina Otola, Rebecca Sheen, Kayla Luca Wiki, Jamie Fisher, Catherine, June Vivenzi Sullivan, Candace Havens, Michelle Keene, Corinne Harley, Brooke Hardy, Stella, Barbara Baucater, Angela Valentine, Joe Ramos, Shelby Emerson, Donna Barnes, Patricia Key, Christine Conklin, Brooke Fiddler, Chelsea Duke. Carolina Peel, Cassie Coleman, Selena Millington, Christy, Jenna Sandala, Melanie Raywell, Mary Kate Orris, Amber Golding, MB, Caitlin O'Donnell, Drew Copenhaver, Millie Moreno, Paige Budney, Eleanor Bracken, Emily Conboy, Maya Ross, Rhiannon McKinney, Brittany Bestwick, Crystal Sims, Jessica Tovar, Michaela Shaw, Camilla Collar, and Sarah Richards. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. We could not do it without you. Thank you so much for your love and patience and support for us saying your names. We hope we said them right. Nevertheless, we love you regardless. And be sure if you're in the ruling the airwaves tier to join the exclusive Facebook group so we can chat with you. Yes. Lots of fun stuff going on in there right now. I love the article. Tons of different conversations. We talk about everything from earbuds. I'm in a conversation about earbuds right yes. now. People will be like, is it okay to post this? I'm like, it's your group. We'll post, post anything. Post I'll anything. respond to it. It's my favorite thing. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Like I said, we could not do it without you. We love you. Thanks so much. Keep it creepy. Mwahaha. Sinister Hey, 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.